Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Fernandina Island is a single huge shield volcano, one of the most active volcanoes in the world. It has an enormous caldera that is about four kilometers across, about 900 meters deep. Welcome to a brand new series of the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that takes you straight into the heart of some of the wildest places on Earth. The volcano has erupted massively on several occasions and it became a moonscape. In this episode, we're looking at the things you find in the most unexpected of places. Things that aren't where they ought to be. Or things that are exactly where they ought to be, but not where we were expecting to find them. Back in 1978... I was with a team of volcanologists when I saw something very curious. The caldera had recently erupted. There was absolutely no sign of life at first sight, except there were dozens of Galapagos hawks flying around, and I soon realized they were actually preying on a large number of very camouflaged baby land iguanas. And I really wondered, what on earth are these little iguanas doing inside this horrendous pit? In this first story, we're on Fernandina Island in the Galapagos, around 600 miles west of Ecuador in the Pacific Ocean. On its rocky shores, iguanas bask on black lava rocks, and penguins and sea lions make the most of the fertile seas. The shoreline may be teeming with life, but inside the volcano itself? A barren, steep-sided dust bowl, scorched by the sun, with no shelter and no food. And yet, there they were, hundreds of tiny iguanas. It was clear that they had hatched there and they were making their way out of the caldera. If anyone knows what they were doing there, it's this woman, wildlife photographer and adventurer, Tui de Roy. It's been said by many, and probably by me as well, that there's been less people inside the caldera of Fernandina than there have been on the moon. I'm not sure whether that's true, because first of all, I'm not sure I know how many people have been on the moon. (laughs) But there's certainly been far less people inside the caldera than there have been on the top of Mount Everest or even on the top of K2. Um, Myself, I've been there probably a dozen times. That's pretty much it. I'm Tweeda Roy, and I grew up in the Galapagos Islands. I arrived in Galapagos on the day of my second birthday. There was virtually no contact with the outside world. 
but I was surrounded with Darwin's finches and marine iguanas and lizards and so on. And nature was essentially my classroom. Becoming a naturalist photographer was entirely fueled by the experience that I had around me here in Galapagos. It wasn't until 1984, six years later, I happened to be there during the week that the female iguanas are actually nesting inside this caldera. It turns out these iguanas actually make this tremendous expedition into the caldera to lay their eggs. They all walked all the way from wherever they were living, down on the slope of the volcano, or even some of them all the way from the coast, all the way up the volcano, down into the caldera, to lay their eggs. On average, it takes them about a month. And actually, to date, no scientist has ever seen this nesting. There have been entire nesting seasons that have been completely wiped out by lava flows. The areas where I first saw the iguanas nesting are now covered in lava. They can't nest there anymore, so they keep having to look for other patches. So it's really an amazingly unfriendly place for them to nest. And when the hatchlings emerge, they have absolutely no cover. So all the hawks on the islands converge and pick them off. But clearly, the warmth of the caldera is what makes it attractive to them. Descending into the caldera is a bit of an epic. Many parts of it are almost sheer walls, and there are massive landslides. The trip down is, is quite risky. There is no, no two ways about it. It's quite risky because there's so much loose rock. And so it's, it's quite dangerous, both for iguanas and for people. A little while back, Tui was approached by a BBC film crew. They wanted to find a way to film the iguana's epic journey into the heart of the volcano. And they needed her help. I immediately volunteered to actually check out whether the iguanas were still nesting. We explored various different ways of getting down there. We got into impasses. It was really hairy. There were some very frightening moments. I don't really want to go into them, but uh, I think I came closer to dying on that trip than I have anywhere else in the world. <laughs> we managed to find a relatively safe and stable route, and that was the year before. And then, shortly before the film team arrived, Fernandina erupted. The whole island obviously shook, and by the time we got there, the route that we had used had collapsed. So we had to establish a new descent route. Toby, the producer, said, so do you think you've found a safe way to go into the caldera? And I said, hell no, there is no safe way to go to the caldera. That's absolutely impossible. A safe route doesn't exist. So we both laughed and uh, we explained to everyone who was going down that if at any time they felt unsafe and didn't want to continue, that they were free to turn around. You see the iguanas just doggedly going down and they do a fair bit of slithering. 
We did find some iguanas that had been trapped and killed by rock falls, for sure. Everybody wore helmets and never more than two people to going down at the same time. And it all worked out fine. The entire behavior of these iguanas is just mesmerizing because of the fact that they're doing something that is just so extreme. To see them, first of all, on the rim of the volcanoes, having already walked for kilometers up to the edge, and it's hot as, literally hotter than hell. And uh, then they finally get down there in this absolutely unthinkable place, and they do what nature has program them to do and lay their eggs down there. And they do it with such dogged determination. The entire process is just one that never ceases to absolutely fascinate me. We were down there for a week and we basically looked for not only the iguanas digging their holes, but also the perspective of the location, the grandeur of the backdrop. And I have to say that even with the widest fisheye lens, it still doesn't convey the full impression of being down in the world's greatest natural pit. It's kind of eerie because, especially at night, there is no breeze, there is absolutely no hint of a sound. There are no trees for any wind to rustle through. So there's this kind of absolute peace, absolute quiet. And then suddenly a rockfall starts and you hear bang, crash, rumble, 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 well, bang, crash, echo across the caldera. And it, that sound just grows and it makes you feel like you're about to be buried, even though it's really not a very big rockfall. It's really, it's, it's mesmerizing. I have to admit it is an incredibly hostile place, but having grown up in these islands, I've always been drawn by the most hostile places. And to me, I sort of feel closer to nature than I do anywhere else, and so, I can't bring myself to being frightened. I am just totally fascinated. I'm engrossed. I'm, I feel like I'm in my element. And I feel like I've just suddenly gone back into timelessness. You know, you look back and you think, is this real? You know, have I really just been down there? The film crew that accompanied Tui into the caldera were filming for the latest BBC Natural History spectacular, A Perfect Planet. Narrated by David Attenborough, A Perfect Planet tells the story of the extraordinary natural forces that make our fragile planet so perfect for harbouring life. The sun, volcanoes, oceans and the weather. Throughout this series of the BBC Earth podcast, we'll be dipping in and out of A Perfect Planet, bringing you some of the best stories from the series, from on location and from behind the cameras. If you want to follow Tui and the iguanas down into the spectacular moonscape caldera for yourself, you'll want to check it out. It's out now in the UK, or check the BBC Earth website for when it's coming to you.
You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're telling stories of things that aren't where they ought to be. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When it comes to wild animals, we have fairly fixed ideas of where they're supposed to be. Goats live on high mountain passes, tigers belong in the rainforest... And if you were in the desert, you wouldn't be surprised to find a camel or two. You might have to do a double take if you spotted one in New York City. But of course there are plenty of animals who share our urban jungles with us. Seagulls feasting on our scraps, or hedgehogs taking shortcuts through back gardens. A nighttime glimpse of an urban fox can be thrilling. An encounter with a rat, for many people, slightly less so. But there are others. High above the bustle of the city streets, if you're lucky, you might spot a flash of a yellow eye patch, the curve of a razor-sharp talon. There are powerful predators in our midst, if you know where to look. If you live in a large city, chances are there's a peregrine falcon somewhere perched high on a skyscraper on a very tall building. My name is Jason Ward. I am a birder, science communicator, the host of the best birding show ever called Birds of North America, and I'm also the new chief diversity officer for the American Bird Conservancy. If you want to see a peregrine falcon without leaving the city limits, Jason might be the man to help you find one. They're the fastest animal on the planet. If you're very, very fast, you don't want a lot of obstacles in your way. You need a lot of open space. So open country, cliff sides, those are their natural environments. They nest on cliff faces, and then they are able to look out and observe all that's around them and, and hunt that way. Well, a lot of those really tall buildings and skyscrapers, these concrete structures, these steel buildings sort of resemble the canyons and cliff faces that they would naturally nest on. And then you have a lot of open sky above the cities as well that has attracted another species that nests on cliff faces in the wild, the pigeon. Those are two of my favorite birds because of the fact that they're highly adaptable. They're just as comfortable in the city as they are in the open country. And that is something that I try to live by, being able to be comfortable in any kind of environment. I can be in the boardroom with a bunch of execs and I'm comfortable there. And then you throw me back in the South Bronx and I'm with a group of friends and I'm totally comfortable there as well. 
And I think the Peregrine is a, a really good example of just um, ultimate resilience and adaptability in, in a species. Resilience and adaptability. Learning to build a life for yourself somewhere you feel a little out of place. These are all things Jason's pretty familiar with too. The birds come from the wild but carve out a niche among humans in the big city. For a boy born in the big city, he had to carve out a niche among the birds. I grew up in the South Bronx in New York City. I actually grew up in the poorest congressional district in the country. So there was a lot of love and a lot of community in, in my neighborhood. But there was also a lot of crime as well, a lot of gang activity. And it was a normal part of my everyday existence growing up. Throughout all of those years, I had a, a secret. That secret was I was a, an animal nerd. Every day after school, I would go to the local library and just pile my desk full of animal books and just dive into these worlds. It wasn't really something that I shared with a, a group of friends. So it was a secret for a very, very long time. It was just something that I was afraid of because of the unknown factor. You know, is, is this something that people who look like me typically engage in? Is it safe? If a 10-year-old black kid turns on a TV and sees LeBron James dunking a basketball, it's going to be like, whoa, that's, that's really cool. He looks like me. I want to do that. But if they have a love for nature, the outdoors, and they turn on Animal Planet, Discovery, there aren't any hosts who look like they do. So they're going to assume, not always, but they're going to assume that those professions, those careers are not necessarily for people who look like I do. That just kind of ingrains itself in the subconscious and it kind of informs your decision making to actually do what Steve Irwin is doing. That was something that I that I at, at a very young age deemed to be out of my reach. When I was 15 years old, that's when I found my bird that changed the course of my life from that point forward. That was the peregrine falcon. I noticed them, some feathers kind of floating by my window. And I'm like, when, you know, one feather turned into five, which turned into ten. And I'm like, hey, what's going on here? So I, I run towards the window to check it out. And then I see the, the peregrine falcon eating the pigeon. And I'm just blown away. I'm captivated. You know, that was, that's something that typically a lot of people would see and they would say, close the blinds, I don't want to see that. But to me, that was Animal Planet HD right in front of me. It was action-packed. It was something that drew me toward it. I didn't want to move because I didn't want to scare it away. I wanted to be able to watch this and observe it. That encounter taught me two things. One, I didn't have to travel to far exotic places to be able to enjoy and appreciate nature. And two the window that I was observing this peregrine falcon encounter through was the window of a homeless shelter that my family and I had lived in for about five or six years at the time. Even though those were some pretty, you know, grim circumstances, that bird sighting temporarily made me forget about all of that. So that encounter with the falcon happened at about 15 years old. I wound up moving down to Atlanta, where I live now. It was about three or four years after that encounter. I was working at a mortgage corporation. 
and I got a promotion. And that promotion, it granted me with free weekends and more money in my pockets. So with those two things, I decided to pursue something that I loved. It was like a literal light bulb went off. Birds, nature, of course. Let's see if there's something that I can get into involving nature, involving birds in the Atlanta area. I downloaded apps on my phone and I I went on YouTube to study videos and I went birding even more, ingratiated myself in the community. And eight months later, I was leading my very first bird walk. And I've been leading that bird walk the first Saturday every month since then. I learned fast and I'm still learning to this day, but um, I'm, I'm fully, I'm two feet in into the birding world now. I often think that us, we, we go about our days passively observing the world around us. When it comes to birding, you cannot be a passive seer. You have to intentionally see things. You have to know where to look. And then you have to know what part of the bird to look for. You don't have all day. The bird is just going to hop around for a couple moments and then completely fly away. So you have to be very quick. And you have to be listening the entire time as well. A lot of our identifications are made by ear. That takes a lot of time as well. That's been my experience. Just repetition, getting it wrong, and, and correcting those mistakes. When I'm able to hear people of color or anyone come to me and say, hey, you know, I never really considered birding before, but I picked up a pair of binoculars after watching one of your videos. It's really overwhelming and really amazing whenever I hear something like that. And just to know that there is the potential of some kid growing up in the inner city somewhere across the country or the world who may have his own passion for for the outdoors, but may be saying, I don't know if this is for someone who looks like me. My show is out there for them to watch, and that could potentially impact their decisions growing up. That spells out success for me. If a peregrine falcon is a creature you rarely glimpse unless you know how to find it, our final story today is about an animal you probably see all the time, but never really look at. An ordinary creature. Dull, slow-moving, with not a whole lot going on you might think. But ordinary things can be extraordinary too, when you know how to look at them. Sometimes taking a creature out of its normal habitat, holding it up to the light and spending time with it, is all it takes for us to see it with new eyes. This is the sound of a snail eating with 2,642 teeth. When I was 34, I went on a trip out of the country just for a week and encountered a sort of perfect storm of pathogens. By the time I landed back in my home state of Maine, my life had changed in ways I could never have imagined. I managed to get home to my house and then I was sicker than I had ever been in my life, suddenly, acutely, at the age of 34. It was an illness that 
my doctors had not encountered before. I was completely bedridden. I could not even sit up. And so anytime I needed to sit up or stand up, it was the equivalent of what a healthy human feels when they dive underwater and they only have oxygen for a limited amount of time. I would have felt better if I had lived on the moon because the moon has lower gravity and it would have been easier for my heart to pump blood in a lower gravity atmosphere. One of the years that I was bedridden, something as unexpected as the illness itself glided into my life. A friend came to visit. I got tired from the visit, so she went for a walk in the forest. And when she came back, she had a pot of violets and a brown forest snail about the size of a walnut. I didn't really know what to say to that because it wasn't anything I'd <laughs> expected. Just as sudden and acute as my illness was, this snail was suddenly displaced from the forest that it knew very well to a flower pot two feet from my bed, and I'm responsible for it. I was really exhausted from the visit, so I just zoned out in that illness place where you go and kind of forgot about it for a while. And then in the evening, I noticed it. It was poking its head out of its shell, and its tentacles were moving around very gracefully as it was trying to figure out where on earth it suddenly was. It always went to sleep during the day in the flower pot, slept all day, and it always started to have adventures in the evening as the light faded. I realized that it had habits. I would wake up in the morning and I would notice that there was a hole chewed in a piece of paper. It wasn't eating the green violet petals. It was just eating holes in paper. I finally realized it must be the snail. And it must be very hungry. So I took some of the dried petals and I put them down near the snail one evening. And its tentacles got very interested and moved back and forth toward the petals. And it glided over. And it started to eat a petal. And it was very quiet in the room where I was. There was no refrigerator humming, no computer humming. And I realized I could hear the sound of it eating, just like very tiny creature munching. And that kind of blew me away. There's something remarkably personal about hearing another animal eating. It just sort of drew me closer to this being that otherwise was nothing like me was a remarkable moment of an interspecies connection. As I watched the snail as the weeks and the months passed, it just became a connection that kept me alive, really, my spirit. When I couldn't participate in my human world, I became a sort of participant in the snail's microcosmic world. As I got that little bit better, I was able to do more reading about snails and blew me away what I was learning. Snails have been on Earth much, much longer than humans. 
So they've had much longer time to evolve safe survival mechanisms. And they will probably be on Earth much longer than humans will as well. A snail is a superhero. It has strength many, many times its weight. A snail can glide vertically right up a tree trunk or a wall. It can even glide upside down across a ceiling or the underside of a branch. No human without equipment can possibly go vertically up a wall, let alone hang from the ceiling. When you start to look at this little animal, it is just absolutely mind-blowing what their abilities are. And here they are living in their very own fortress, their snail shell that they can pull in, which makes them look like they might not even be home. And it's very strong. The snail also had a shocking number of teeth. I had heard that tiny little sound. It had not occurred to me how many teeth it had. And my species of snail, this is a forest snail, it's called a Neohelix albolabris, had 2,642 teeth. The teeth are tiny and they're in little rows. If you can imagine one of those incredible escalators, like the kind in London that are three stories down into the ground to get onto a, a train, the escalator of teeth would was like a grater, and they would literally grate away at the food as they came down onto the food. We were basically living together 24-7, and I watched the, the snail for most of a year, which in the human world seems almost impossible to conceive of, and I could only do it because I, I had no other choice. This little animal had been removed from its habitat, which continued to bother me, but eventually I was able to create, with help, a habitat for it in the house, very much like in the forest, and it was able to adapt. I saw it continue to go about its life and do very important things that a snail needs to do just the way a human needs to do. Its ability to adapt gave me hope that somehow I would eventually find a way to adapt to my illness. I'm not sure I'll ever accept what happened to me in terms of illness. If I could go back and not go on the trip that ended up causing my illness, I would do that in a heartbeat. And yet there are some amazing things that have happened because I had to as we say here in the United States, make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> I would not have spent a year watching a snail. If you want to hear more from Elizabeth and the snail, she's written a memoir called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. And there's a short film too, with the same title. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. Stories were produced by me, Emily Knight, and Eliza Lomas. If you're feeling a little out of place yourself, don't worry. 
You can sign up to the BBC Earth newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter to be thrust back into the world of animals, nature and science whenever you need it. And join us next week when we'll be telling stories about the places that humans don't usually get to go. Hidden worlds just beyond our reach. We'll be meeting what lives there and uncovering their secrets. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.